I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance make sure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. On the last podcast, I mentioned the life-changing giveaway that we will be doing with the training division Fire Academy in Texas, where one lucky person will win a full tuition-paid scholarship to be trained as a firefighter. Follow us on social media and watch the details in our April 1st announcement. Today I'm excited to be joined by the President of Conservation Visions and founder of the Wild Harvest Initiative, world-renowned conservationist Shane Mahoney. Shane possesses a rare combination of conservationist, scientist, historian and philosopher. Shane is a gifted orator and insightful thinker with a profound commitment to wild nature, rural societies and to the sustainable use of Earth's natural resources. Shane, welcome to the Silver Core Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. (laughs) As am I. Now, I don't wish to recapitulate your many accolades, and there are many, as others have very eloquently done that before me. So instead, I'm going to have a complete bio on our website for our listeners to reference. The Silver Core podcast is about sharing our passions with others. What I'd really hope to achieve with this podcast is to distill your almost palpable enthusiasm for conservation and communicate that to our listeners in a way that makes the somewhat nebulous concept more tangible. And second, I would like to learn more about the Wild Harvest Initiative. So with that said, growing up, I don't know anyone who's naturally inclined towards conservation as that concept doesn't tend to enter the mind until there's the realization of what could be lost. And it had me wondering. When did you start your journey as a conservationist and what sparked it? Well, I think you're right in one sense that, um, you know, individuals don't begin even in their explorations of nature of thinking about conservation. But I think very early in a child's exploration of nature, the ingredients for a conservation awareness is born. Um, it really starts with some basic elements. Um, One is a fascination with other living things, whether they be insects or sticklebacks or frogs or whatever it might be, butterflies and bees. Um, And the other, I think, is just a sense of a rare combination of love and adventure that seem to emerge simultaneously at almost every any level of engagement with nature. So a young child um, engaging in the natural world, maybe catching small trout or catching insects or catching frogs. You know, if you were to ask that little human, why are you doing it? Uh, they'd probably shrug and say something like, it's fun. It wouldn't get into a detailed explanation of breaking fun down, but fun generally is something that makes you feel good, something that makes you happy, uh, and something that you'd like to have a lot more of. 
And so I think, in fact, the road to conservation can begin extremely early, but I don't think it always has to. It can start, it can come to people later in their lives too. And part of that is a sweepstake, you know, uh, where you were born, uh, what opportunities you had to be in nature, um, who your parents were, who your friends were. Uh, my particular case, um, my path was in fact established almost from the womb because I grew up in a very rural place. I grew up in a very isolated place. And for those earliest of early years, being a part of nature was very easy because it was all around us. You stepped out of your door and that's where you were. Mm. And I lived in a culture in Newfoundland where people lived by harvesting wildlife, fish. They were fishermen primarily. They raised some animals, of course, for livestock purposes, and we all had gardens. And so the lifestyle was very much one of self-sufficiency and rhythms that were determined by nature. And so even as a young child, you began to understand the rhythms of nature when trout could be caught in the small streams and when tadpoles would disappear under the mud and when certain bird species would no longer be around. So I spent my earliest days engaged in nature, catching eels, catching, catching uh, other fishes off wharves, uh, you know, surveying tiny little streams that I thought were massive rivers, you know, and <laughs> learning about the muskrats and the mink and other things that were there. So as a boy of three to five, I mean, this is what I did. So I am sort of the exception to the rule, perhaps, uh, in that that was what my life was. And in a very true sense, my life has never changed. Right. I went on to become a man. I, you know, took degrees at universities. I became a research biologist. I worked with uh, bears and caribou and moose and lynx and coyotes and so on. And did all of those exciting things that people see, you know, and, and started some of them. I mean, the radio coloring programs, you know, the, the jumping out of helicopters, the, the immobilizing of bears in their dens, you know, all of these kinds of things, climbing the cliff faces to study seabirds, which I've worked on for a long time. And being around the sea uh, a great deal is a very emotionally charged and life-changing thing anyway. And so I came into it in a sense from the womb. Uh, I was born into that circumstance. I lived that circumstance. I loved that circumstance. And two things came out of that experience. One was more than a fascination, but as I said earlier, a love for wild things, a real belief. They, they were part of my life. The frogs I caught and kept, uh, the insects I kept and tried to keep alive, uh, all of the things I did that way, they, they were part of, I spent more time looking after them in my family than I certainly spent looking after my sisters and brother. <laughs> and so uh, it transitioned after a while from fascination to something of love. 
And as I went on my reading binges as a very early boy, I was a voracious early reader and continued that through my university days and to the present day. All of that love and fascination for wild things and any animal, actually, not just wild. Um, you know, I got to live it out in my research career in wilderness areas for years and years. I spent massive amounts of time alone. Uh, and ultimately, I came to a point in my life where I now my fundamental creed, my Celtic belief, if you will, as I am an Irish citizen as well, mm. uh, is that there is no difference between us and them. Mm. I see absolutely no difference between us. We're different. We're all different. The zebra is different from the horse. The man is different from the whale, and the whale is different from the great ape. But I don't buy into any of the um, ideas that we have dominion, that we have superiority. Some of our talents are superior in some ways to the talents of animals. Some of animals' talents are superior to others. And yet, despite the fact that I believe all of this to be true, I also firmly believe in the, in the lifestyle of sustainable use, in the harvesting of wild things, the utilization of wild things. And people often ask me who know me well, particularly anti-hunting organizations who know me quite well, how is it that I can still hunt and fish given the fact that I have these very strong opinions about um, animals? And I explained to them that the primary issue here is not whether I love them. The primary issue is that I am one of them. Mm. And that the laws of nature are not made for all the other species and then a separate law made for us. There's only one series of laws of nature, and all of us demand the same things from the environment we live in. We need clean air, we need clean water, we need food. We need some sense of freedom. All animals seek it, and if you deny it to any animal, including the human animal, you aberrate, you change, you deconstruct, you, you, dis, you dis, disassemble. Uh, the health processes of the animal. We all know this to be true. Something else we all share. And uh, so I simply can see no honest way of living than to live as the animal I am and being the animal I am to live in this complicated world of harvesting other animals and plants and berries and fruits and so on from the natural world as much as I can in modern time. Um, and I don't have any moral or ethical uh, problems with that. But I certainly do have emotionally, emotional tensions over the killing of things. And so while I have hunted extensively, uh, it is never a simple thing and I have very little if any respect for people who hunt or fish and who treat animals as simply targets mm -hmm. and who seem to believe that they don't feel the bullet the same as we do mm. uh, they do feel the bullet exactly the same as we do 
exactly the same as you would. Mm-hmm. But again, none of that can change the fact that the laws of nature, the laws of ecology are what they are. And I would sooner harvest as much of my food from the wild as I can. I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Not everyone in the world can. And I also feel very deeply that the animals we raise for food ought to be raised in a very caring and ethical manner as far as humanly possible. I absolutely agree. What do you currently see as some of the biggest challenges to the lifestyle of sustainable use of our wildlife and resources? Well, there are many. Some of them are just mega issues. There are, there, there, are, there are overreaching issues that are not in any sense usually local. So, for example, the sheer number of human beings that we have on the planet is really causing disruptions to all lifestyles almost. Sure. Um, whether one has retreated to cities or moves out to the suburbs or wherever one goes, The sheer numbers of people and the amount of industrial infrastructure that is necessary to service the basic needs of those people is creating, of course, a massive problem for everyone. And the sustainable use lifestyle, some of its components are healthy because they're absolutely essential. So all international fisheries are sustainable use activities and nobody is dreaming of stopping them because the you know half the world would starve immediately if we did so. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sustainable use activities that some of your listeners might be thinking about, you know, their own activities of hunting moose or elk or bear or turkeys or waterfowl or fishing for bass or lake trout or salmon or you know whitefish or whatever it might be. Some of those tend to get quite a bit more attention sometimes because people see them as unnecessary. They see them Mm -hmm. as a little bit, you know, you could go to the grocery store, Shane, you could buy all your meat from another source, you could get Mm -hmm. all of your berries and fruits from there, you don't really have to go out into the wild and do those things. And so that's one part of it where people see, why don't you be like the rest of the world, the majority of the world living in urban centers, and simply go and get your food that way. And then there are the iconic issues. So the international hunters going to places like Africa or Central Asia to hunt iconic species such as, you know, elephant or lion or something of this nature, which causes a massive backlash amongst a lot of people. And even more locally, such as British Columbia, Mm. the idea of harvesting iconic species such as grizzly bear, for example, Uh, or now in New Mexico, there are bills to end all trapping on public lands, to end all black bear hunting in the current session, which will probably pass. We have this, this international arena talking about far away, you know, people hunting animals. And then we have local issues, particularly with carnivores like bears and wolves, especially where people just say, why are you doing that? And if you're not eating them, then I really don't think you should be doing this at all. Mm. And so it's the combination of those things. You know, society never stays the same. Society in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s didn't host this array of opinion. 
There were some people who felt these ways, but not as extensively. But in the early decades of the 2000s, now we are into you know the year 2021, we can expect many of these attitudes to be more openly discussed. We can look to see more legislation coming forward. But at the same time, I will predict that we will also see a countercurrent. That movement against hunting and things of that nature has moved on enough, matured enough, that now you're starting to see second guessing on the part of people, counter reactions to some of that thinking starting to take place, where, for example, people are saying, you elsewhere should not dictate the lives of people who live in these rural and local circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that too is becoming a global phenomenon. So we are going to witness in the next decade in particular, and the next two decades perhaps, a really strong countercurrent exchange between animal welfare, animal rights, hunting, sustainable use uh, lifestyles, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's, a, it's a combination of all of those things that are happening. And, you know, people in the hunting and, and, and sustainable use space need to realize something. They need to realize several things. They need to realize that this issue of whether we will sustainably use nature is tied up with politics, it's tied up with social attitudes. It's tied up with economics. It's tied up with, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, cultural traditions that people have grown up with. It's based on so many complicated factors. We tend to try to want to control the easy ones. Oh, and not enough people are hunting and fishing. Hey, let's get more people out there hunting and fishing. Mm. Good idea. Nothing wrong with it. I have no problem with that. But that is not going to provide us with the insight to know about how we are going to keep sustainable use harvesting going in the long term. And the debates over whether we can do that or not are not going away. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to deal with those increasingly. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have been seeing a shift here in the last few years, particularly with COVID recently, there's been, I think they call it the locavore diet or the hundred mile diet or the desire for people to start harvesting their own food locally and in a sustainable way. So we've been seeing that trend growing in the cities yeah. and with COVID coming in, there's been a lot of people that have been scared about what they read and see in the media and that fear will instill in them the desire for self-sufficiency. And we're seeing on the firearm side, there's gun stores are reporting massive increases in the amount of sales that they're making, as well as interest in basic outdoor survival and safety, hunting, um, self-sufficiency. I have been watching a trend prior to COVID that seems accelerated because of COVID. And I, I have to wonder how this conversation is evolving around hunting and the sustainable use of our resources. Is it going to, uh, evolve essentially in spite of us? 
there is a desire to get more people out there hunting. There is a desire to have changed the way that we talk about hunting and harvesting animals. Uh, we don't want to call it a sport. We don't want to call it recreation, even though in our province in British Columbia, it is listed under the sports and recreation section of the provincial website. With the correct information, we can start making some correct decisions about how we progress with this. And I believe that's the intention of the wild harvest initiative is to pool as much information as you can so that you can at least let the data speak for itself to hunters and non-hunters alike. Am I correct in that understanding? Yeah, you're, you are in part correct in that. I mean, I think, I think ultimately the wild harvest initiative was built out of the very kinds of reflections that you and I have been sharing on this podcast. First of all, a relatively small percentage of society really cares about conservation. Mm. Only a small percentage. Mm. You ask a survey, of course, uh, to people over the phone and everybody will say they're concerned about it. But the proof of the matter is that only at this point in time, a relatively small percentage of the population is concerned about conservation. Secondly, those that are concerned about conservation are deeply divided. Mm -hmm. So you have people who hunt and you have people who fish and people who berry pick and people who love wilderness and people who hike and people who snowboard and people who kayak and blah, blah, blah. And they certainly don't all share all the same views. Mm -hmm. So here we have a problem of a big conservation vacancy that we need to fill. And we have a relatively small number of people who are interested in it. And in that box of relatively small number of people, most of them are inside with, like this. I see that a lot. Right? Yeah. And it's, for the listeners, you had your, your hands in a pugilist stance. Yeah. So, you know, this is what we're up against. And I have seen almost nothing in the last 30 years to move us away from that. Oh, I've seen hunter retention and recruitment efforts, and I've seen people say, we all should talk together. And I've seen various efforts of that kind. But show me the meetings that are taking place. Show me the programs that have years behind them. Show me the circumstances where this is actually changing. And they're very few, they're very rare, and they're very localized. Mm -hmm. And you can go across the breadth of Canada to try to find this. And you might have a certain committee, you know, funded by a government agency or something that, you know, by virtue of its funding forces people to come together or something. But by and large, you simply do not have this happening organically. Mm -hmm. Well, the motto on my website is one, you know, one natural world, one humanity and one chance. Because that's what I believe it is. And so I wanted to find some way. I spent 33 years as leading research teams, publishing in journals, setting up an institute, you know, doing all those kinds of things. And that wasn't getting the job done. It was giving us a lot of knowledge about bears and caribou and moose and predator-prey interactions and all that. And that was all good. Mm. But this wasn't doing anything about building a broader conservation community to advance conservation. So I started to think about, okay, what are the issues? What are the issues that fit into 
these two categories at the same time. Number one, there are issues that everybody, if you discuss it with them, will care about. And number two are issues that are already public in society. They're already manifest. Mm. And what of those issues could be helpful in building a community for conservation? And I landed surprisingly on the idea of wild food and wild harvesting. Mm -hmm. Why? Because everyone is concerned about healthy food. More and more people are concerned every day about healthy food the world over. Mm -hmm. That was not true 25 years ago. It is true today. Mm -hmm. And more and more people are also concerned about their own physical health, their longevity and their fitness than was true 25 years ago. And these trends are escalating in society by any measure. Number of cookbooks, number of people in fitness programs, number of people taking yoga, number of people cooking at home, number of people with small gardens, number of people in the locavore movement, number of people buying organic, number of people complaining about hormones and additives into the food systems that they have, the fear that people have over GMO products, etc. There is so much evidence to indicate that this is a fundamental movement in society. And the sustainable use movement has spent its entire lifetime fighting against the social trends that it thought were damaging. The people who mm. didn't like hunting or the people who didn't like hunting carnivores or the people that didn't like one form of use or another catch and release fishing or whatever it might be. I wanted to find a way to work with factors in society that were moving in our directions that I could capture and be positive about. I like that. So my effort is the antithesis of what has been going on. And I was part of what was going on for a long time. So I know what was going on. Mm -hmm. This is the antithesis of what was going on. Working with society's change to build more change, not trying to stand up and hold my hands against the changes in society, which is a fruitless exercise. I agree. So I conceived this idea of food. And then I started to think about, all right, well, how much food is there? How much food do we harvest? And the answer to that question was no one knows. Mm -hmm. So a hundred years after we start the North American model of conservation, no one in Canada, no one in the United States can answer you the following basic questions. How many species of fish and wildlife do we harvest in Canada and the United States? How many individuals from all those species do we harvest in Canada and the United States? What is the food amount of the harvest of all those fish and wildlife in the United States? and Canada. What is the economic value of all of that food so that it becomes meaningful to politicians as a discussion point? Mm -hmm. 
And what would it cost tomorrow if the 40 to 45 million hunters and anglers in Canada and the United States didn't acquire this food on their own and required that food from the grocery store aisles? How much more wildlife habitat? How much more fertilizer? How much for more petrol? How much more land? How much more environmental intrusion would be necessary to actually provide that. Now, every one of those arguments will resonate with the people who are concerned about their health, are concerned about the quality of their food, are concerned about how long they're going to live and how good they're going to look and how healthy their lungs are going to be and on and on and on and on. And for some, how much wildlife is there going to be in the world that they get a chance to see? How clean will our water be? How healthy will our land be? How, how lovely will our forest look? All those kinds of questions. So I set out to do this. And uh, four years into this program, uh, we are now the custodians of the largest knowledge base in the temperate world on the harvest of wildlife and fish. We continue to work on this. We're adding new data all the time. We are adding new players all the time, new partners. Uh, we have succeeded. We have the government of Texas, the government of Florida, the government of Arizona, the government of Nevada, the government of Wyoming, the government of Alaska. The governments are already are partners in this. We have the, the gorillas, if you will, of the, of the industry world, the outdoor industry world, Bass Pro and Cabela's, that empire, Johnny Morris himself personally, they are a major supporter of this. We have the supporters in, in Leupold, the great family-owned optics company, uh, Sitka Clothing, uh, Mystery Ranch, etc., etc. So we have big players in the, in the industry side of this. On the NGO side, we have an enormous array of entities going all the way from international hunting organizations such as Dallas Safari Club and Wild Sheep Foundation, all the way to the most determined, localized, North American specific hunters like backcountry hunters and anglers, for example, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance. I mean, we have just a a powerhouse, as well as some private philanthropists, uh, the National Wildlife Federation, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, you know. The list goes uh, on. Uh, and, and, and a lot more. And they are all currently working and funding with us work to make this work happen. And as we gather the information, of course, we are coming out with completely novel information on the amount of food that comes from wild turkeys, the amount of food that comes from mule deer, the amount of food that comes from elk. And we can divide that up from state, by province, by region. And we are now giving uh, those numbers economic value by dealing with rating entities in Europe and the United States that give us you know, the equivalent cost if you were to sell this in the marketplace. And we are coming out with lists of fact sheets that our partners can distribute everywhere, writing articles, obviously, op-eds, appearing in magazines, and now we may have a television show that may be emerging. See what's going to happen there. The point is that even in the COVID year, 
we just signed up three major new partners, the state of Alaska, the state of Wyoming, and the Wild Sheep Foundation of Alaska in the midst of COVID. Wow. So, and now we have interest from Africa to try and see if there is a way of bringing this model and this program to Africa. And of course, in the state of British Columbia, we have the guides and outfitters of British Columbia who have been stellar partners in this for forever. Mm -hmm. We had hope the Wildlife Federation of British Columbia would join, and I still hope that someday that they possibly they will. But the point is that we do have some support in in uh, British Columbia, and we did have strong political support in British Columbia, at least when the Liberals were there in power. And hopefully with the NDP there now, they will look at this as well. Because look, the ultimate idea here is to explain to people that nature is a source of health and sustenance. And we need to care for it because it is capable, even in the 21st century for modern societies, of providing vast amounts of healthy food, as well as rec recreation, as well as healthful experiences. Nature is our free hospital. Mm. Nature is our free pharmacy. And so we are expanding our work now to go beyond fish and birds and mammals. And we're in major discussions with the US Forest Service to talk about bringing the databases on wild berries, shed antlers, wild mushrooms, firewood harvesting, medicinal plants, wild rices. In other words, anything, anything that you might go out and be interested in harvesting. And so you don't have to be a hunter to be a part of what we're doing. You might be a, forage, a, a mushroom gatherer and a, mm -hmm. and a mountain hiker. Mm -hmm. But, you know, anybody who was into the harvesting of natural and wild foods, we want them to be a part of this. And we intend to export this around the world to remind modern society that we are still ultimately dependent on nature for our survival and for our food and for our health. And maybe to force governments in countries like Canada and the United States to do a better job of managing land for the production of those kinds of things that people want instead of making decisions only on the basis of profits. For or emotion. Yes. And I, you know, I, I really like the, the concept of piggybacking on a trend that's already occurring rather than trying to fight the current. Because, you know, I, I'm looking through the list of things and different questions and you're, you're pegging off a bunch of the ones that I'd like to ask you about, but you know, hunters have always been beating that drum. Hunters are conservationists and they support conservation through the purchase of their licenses and tags and the, the North American model of conservation last hundred, 120 years of, of that has been highly, highly supported by, by the hunting community whether they understand conservation or not, being able to bridge that from the hunting community to the, the non-hunting community, I, th I think is absolutely brilliant. You listed a bunch of different organizations and these organizations are massive that are involved with the initiative. How can an individual 
who is interested in conservation or who's listening to this and says, you know what, you raise some really good points. I want to learn more. I want to be involved. How can an individual be involved with this? Well, we, we, we do have individuals involved, but it's, but it's also important to be upfront and honest. I mean, to be a partner in the Wild Harvest Initiative, there has to be some sort of financial commitment. Now, those financial commitments vary, obviously. You know, you don't, you don't have the same financial commitment from, you know, a Bass Pro mm. as you may have from an individual outfitter. You know, it's, it, it, it can't be. Mm-hmm. But what everybody who is a part of the Wild Harvest Initiative knows is that everybody who has become a partner has contributed something to make it the collective work. Mm-hmm. So I have lots of people who come and say, hey, Shane, you know, we'd like to have our logo associated with your uh, with your partnership. And I say, that'd be really great. You know, I understand that. And I know why you would want that, because when we put out our brochures now and we set up our big displays at conventions and you know, we show some of the, the power, powerful, influential people who are on our side, I know it would be good for you to have your logo there. Mm-hmm. But I have to think about all the people who are there and every one of them made some kind of contribution. And so that is one way. If you want to be part of the alliance or the actual team in the Wild Harvest Initiative, you have to come with the intention of supporting it some way. Mm-hmm. Now, supporting it in some way, that way, of course, that's clear. That's the way it has to be. It was, it's the promise that was made to the partners, the state governments and everyone else that people who are inside the loop, who have access directly, who get to call Shane and ask questions of the website in their area and all those kinds <laughs> of services, they're on the inside. But that doesn't mean that people on the outside who, who may, may want to know more about it, or who may not want to give money or may not have any money that they can give or whatever, they can still help this initiative by talking about, you know, by, by, by joining our mailing list, by, by sending us their email contact information so they can be getting the information that's coming out and then they can share it with their friends. Look, we are determined to establish a new movement in society. This is not a project. This is an unrelenting activity to create a new movement in society that's made up of you know, elderly people who get out there in the forest and love to just go with their grandchildren picking blueberries. It's meant for the, for the you know, the, the, the mad fitness hunter who wants to, you know, run up and down the mountain 50 times before he even <laughs> looks for an animal. You know, it's meant for the, for the float fisherman who's going down there. It's meant for the people who like to seek out their firewood and gather it up and chop, chop it up and bring it home and enjoy putting it on their own fire. It's for the artists who like to collect shed antlers and create, you know, jewelry. It is for the people who collect uh, burrs out of trees to to do sculptures or wooden bowls. Or th- it's for people who 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 from indigenous communities and others understand medicinal plants and want to harvest those. Mm-hmm. It's for everyone. And if you add it up, everyone in our society who does some of that, everyone. 45 million hunters and anglers. Well, how many berry pickers do we have? Mm -hmm. How many hikers do we have who simply harvest beauty? Yes. That's a harvest from nature. We're going to be including that in our database. Mm -hmm. You know what? Because if you go out for any activity in nature, 
harvesting berries, fishing, hunting, chopping firewood, collecting wildflowers, collecting wild honey, maple syrup, just so many things. No matter what you're out there for, when you come back and tell your stories, and everybody tells stories, you can't shut people up. They got to tell their stories about nature. That's the amazing thing. Mm -hmm. When they come back to share those stories, most of what they talk about is not so much the berries they got or the animal they got or whatever. It's the experience they had, the things they saw, the sunset, the river, the, the, the shadows of the moon on the water, the, 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 the wildflowers blowing in the wind, whatever it is, most of what they talk about is beauty. But the thing is, they wouldn't have ever harvested that beauty except they went out into nature. And for many of them, they had a primary motivation that day to go to nature, to berry pick, to get their firewood, to hunt, to fish. You know, they had some motivation that particular day to go. I want all those people talking to one another, and I want all those people talking to politicians and telling politicians, this is what we want done with our wildlife, our land. And I want to bring the indigenous and non-indigenous communities together because food unites us all. I couldn't agree more. Oftentimes, you hear from people, what can I do? I'm just one person. Well, for the listeners, if you'd like to see what one person can do with the help of a large team of others behind him, check out Shane Mahoney's website, Conservation Visions. Check out the Wild Harvest Initiative. Because when you're talking about how to get involved, the boots on the ground networking that one person is capable of doing, they throw up something on their Instagram feed or they do a TikTok or they just raise basic awareness about what it is that they enjoy out in nature and the value in preserving that. And by forwarding the Wild Harvest Initiative information with that, they'll have some tangible metrics that they can be used to measure what that valuable resource is. I, I think, I, I really like what you're doing. The, we are very fragmented and there is a lot of infighting. My side's better than your side or what you're doing is wrong. And it sure sounds like you've got the secret sauce here, if people are willing to participate, for people to work together for our own, everyone's shared interest. We, we do we do have the secret sauce. I can tell you this right now. I, I, spent, I spent 25 years promoting the North American model and as part of my efforts and certainly others, people today would not even know there was a North American model if those activities had not taken place. Mm -hmm. I know that for a fact. Well, I'm telling you this idea is even bigger because this idea can bring together people who are never going to be really interested in the North American model of hunting, but they're interested in wild food. And the other thing about this is that there's absolutely no limitation on background or age or ethnicity or racial uh, uh, background or anything of this nature, because when you look at all of the products in, in nature from beauty to wild plants to medicinal plants to mushrooms to you know wood all the products 
everybody to some extent wants some of that. We have 40 to 45 million people in Canada and the United States, as I said, who every year legally fish and hunt and who consume what they, what they harvest. Not all of it, but a lot of it. We are currently running surveys, uh, scientific surveys. Uh, we've run one in Texas as a prototype, and we are now going to be running surveys in Wyoming, Nevada, Arizona, and Alaska, where we are asking, for the first time, asking hunters, starting with hunters, we'll move on to anglers, asking them how much of the meat they harvest do they share, and who do they share it with? So let's say in Canada and the United States, in terms of hunters, we have 12 million, 5 million. Let's say, we, let's just make a very conservative estimate, say we have 15 million, let's just say 15 million mm -hmm. uh, hunters in the United States and Canada. We actually have more than that, but let's say that that's about what we have. Our a priori, in other words, ahead of time hypothesis is that each of those hunters probably shares that meat that they harvest with at least four people. And we base that cautiously on the household. So it's at least their, their wife and maybe the two children. Mm -hmm. But our initial survey in the state of Texas indicates, in fact, that the average hunter may be sharing his meat or her meat with between 10 and 12 million people, the 10 and 12 people. So now you start to multiply 15 million people by 10 or 12 million people. Now, all of a sudden, the group of people who's actually consuming that wild meat, I'm not saying they're dependent on it. I'm not being meretricious or, or here at all. I'm not saying they depend on it. I say they're just having a burger or they're coming over for a nice meal or they're getting a roast of moose or, you know, a pot of chili or whatever it might be. But they are consuming that food. All of a sudden, the political dynamic here goes from 15 million people to 150 million. Because if that 150 million people did not think that hunting was, in some sense, acceptable, they wouldn't be eating the meat that you would provide it from killing an animal. Mm -hmm. And we are going to do exactly the same with fish. And we believe that the 40 to 45 million people who hunt and fish in Canada and the United States share that food with probably something like 250 to 300 million people out of the 360 million people that exist in our two countries. Holy now, true. if you're a political scientist, you're a social demographer, you're an economist, those kinds of numbers all of a sudden start to mean a lot different to you in your research, in your thinking, in your writing, in your lobbying, etc. So, I don't want to be going back to legislatures arguing for just hunters anymore. I want to be going to back with a group of people behind me, all of whom want to share in the benefits of nature, who are going to the legislatures and telling our elected officials, i.e. the ones who gave them their jobs, mm -hmm. us, I want us to be going there as a group of people that wide and that diverse and telling them we want the right policies for land management and conservation in our countries. And I don't want them split along liberal, conservative, NDP, 
Democrat-Republican lines because there's going to be too many different kinds of us in this group. Mm -hmm. We don't care who's in power. We want you to do the right thing. That is what I'm striving for. That's what the Wild Harvest Initiative is about. That is absolutely phenomenal. Shane, before we wrap things up, is there anything else we should be talking about? Is there anything you'd like to get out? Well, I'm just grateful that we've had this opportunity and I would like to listen to, I would like to say that if there are others out there who have their own venues, if there are media people who have talk shows or, you know, shows on radio, for example, if there are other podcast colleagues that are out there who are interested in this, please get in touch because part of what we are striving to do is to get the word out to as many people as possible, obviously. Um, and also I encourage any of the people who listen to this podcast as an individual or as a member of a group, you may be a member of the Audubon Society, you may be a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, you may be a member of the BC Wildlife Federation, you may be a member of GOABC, you may, you know, you may be in all kinds of organizations, Ducks Unlimited, whatever. Try to convince your organization to become a part of what we're doing because we are growing. We have the, the database. We now have these surveys being conducted in these states. We're way down the road on this thing. And now we're in major discussions with people about Africa. This is amazing. It has leapt already you know, around the world where people have been hearing about this. And if individuals and or their entities want to learn more about it, go to our website. We also have a Wild Harvest Initiative website specifically. We're looking for feedback on that site, but please consider becoming a partner. The individual can become a partner at a small level. Obviously, if you come from a big organization like Ford Trucks, we, 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 we look for you to, to, to make a larger uh, contribution. There are all kinds of businesses. I assume your podcast is primarily listened to in British Columbia. Is that correct? Is that fair assessment? Uh, uh, primarily Canada. Yeah. Primarily Canada, so wider than British Columbia, so across. Um, you know, uh, I'd like for maybe in a, even in future podcasts, you can try to bring this up and encourage people to get in touch with us and to actually become members, uh, Travis, you know, to actually ask them to, 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 to reach out and help us. Uh, there are lots of organizations that could provide financial support to make this work. There's lots of individuals who can do that, and there's lots of individuals, even if they can't provide financial support, can talk about this, can tweet it out, can, can, can put it on their Facebook site, can, you know, look at the videos that we produce and pass them on to their friends and so on and so forth. And believe me, when we throw things out today, we get a lot of reach. We hit a million, a million and a half, two million people when we throw things out. So uh, this, is a, this is a big idea. It's an inclusive idea. It's about things we really feel important about, our health, the health of our environment, and the health of our food. Why would you not get behind this? Shane, thank you very much for being on the Silver Corp Podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.